on today's show, we are getting to know Colleen Davis. But first, a word from today's sponsors. Andre Psyche is the freelance creator extraordinaire, someone who makes music, poetry, art, clothing, and lives to make others feel good. Search him up on any social media. It's Andre Psyche. That's P-S-Y-C-H-E. The next time you are looking to add some creative stimulation to your social media circle. Patreon.com helps creators like me earn a monthly income that will be put towards podcast expenses. Support the Getting to Know You Pod's creative endeavors through Patreon for as little as $2 a month. There are all sorts of costs that I had no fucking idea about associated with posting podcasts, not to mention the need for equipment and production. So dear listeners, if you've enjoyed getting to know any of our guests or just want to help keep the pod going, go to our Patreon. The link's in the description and your support of the Getting to Know You pod is very much appreciated. Two bucks too much? Here are three free ways to help. Get your thumbs ready. One, push the subscribe button on whatever app you're listening to the Getting to Know You pod on. Did that? Thank you. Two, friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on your social media like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Go ahead, open those apps, click away if you haven't already. Thanks again. Three, go to Apple, write a review. The internet tells me this might be the most important and impactful. So thank you. Your support, dear listener, whether it's with your thumbs through our Patreon or ideally both, is greatly appreciated. And now, getting to know you. Hello. Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to Getting to hope you like me Because I'm good enough Getting to know you Putting it my way But nicely I'm smart enough You are precisely And doggone it My cup of tea And Colleen Davis is the incumbent Delaware treasurer running for re-election as the Democratic candidate in the 2020 election on November 8th Master of Coin Thank you for coming on the pod and letting people get to know you. I appreciate it. Thank you, Sean. I, I uh, am happy to join you and uh, happy to kind of talk about some of the things that, that we've been up to and, you know, kind of get a little more information out there, get people to, to understand what it is I do and why it's important. Yeah. And I literally was telling you right before I hit record, I was like, I had no idea your position was even in Delaware. I had no idea that I've never given a thought to state treasurer. And I really feel I'm probably like a lot of voters where it's just like a down the ticket click. Like if I'm Republican, I go straight Republican. If I'm Democrat and I've never even heard this person in this position, you say anything about it. So maybe start with what is the purpose of a state treasurer? Yeah. Um, so the purpose of a state treasurer, uh, the, the big part of uh, what I do is I invest um, a, a lot of our funds, right? So I oversee investments of about a little over $11 billion for the state of Delaware. 
Um, that's across, um, you know, state employees retirement funds and um, the 529 education savings plans that a lot of families um, set aside funds for for their kids, um, higher education costs and things like that. Um, but I also invest in the short term, the cash that we have on hand. So, for example, when someone, you know, buys gas at the pump, there is a there is a gas tax. And when they buy tobacco in the you know convenience store, there is a tobacco tax. And there's a, a portion of property tax that gets um, allocated to the state and um, income tax and things like that. Those taxes that are collected, um, I invest in the short term. I don't set the rates and I do not um, collect the actual tax. I just um, receive it, pull it in and invest it. And, um, you know, why is it important that we know who our treasurer is? Um, it's kind of a question that I get asked often. And I think about, you know, I had a lot of folks who said, were you surprised by anything um, in office when you first, you know, took office? And my initial response, my initial thought was, you know, not not a lot. There wasn't a lot that was surprising. What was surprising was facing a pandemic, facing a, you know, an act of God that that none of us had ever expected we'd be facing. Um, and so, at the outset of the pandemic, we were projecting a two hundred fifty-five million dollar revenue shortfall for the state of Delaware. Um, that put into jeopardy our AAA rating, which is is a big deal. Um, and um, I'm you know really happy to say that we were able to close the books on this fiscal year with a 1.12 billion dollar revenue surplus. We maintained our AAA rating, and in doing two bond issuances since the pandemic, we saved about 17 million dollars on the initial, and on the second one, we saved about 22 million dollars for for state and you know state taxpayers. And so, you know, ensuring that we have an eye on um, fiscal stewardship and and ensuring that we have someone in office who is um, careful <laughs> about those types of things is really important, but. Also ensuring that we have someone in office who cares about how this um, role impacts each and every taxpayer is, is also important because, you know, we, we were able to do a lot of things to sort of help support individuals who were going through some really unprecedented times, um, you know, d despite the challenges that we were facing. And so, um, you know, as a general rule, those are kind of the responsibilities of the office. And um, yeah, no pressure. Eleven billion dollar oversight. No pressure. Right. No, no choice. Easy to go to bed at night. Well, right. And, and I, <laughs> I mean, talk about that kind of stuff. Um, you know, at the at the early stages of the pandemic, we had such a a large and and again sort of unexpected increase in folks that were applying for unemployment that mm. we didn't have enough plastic to make all of the stored value cards or those sort of credit cards that we issue. Um, and, uh, you know, if I was to say that there was anything that was a bit of a surprise is I never expected that I would be responsible for procuring plastic. <laughs> and yet, um, I, you know, in mid-March, late March, was calling other state treasurers to say, hey, do you guys have plastic? 
how are you getting your plastic? What are you doing to, to help ensure that people have money and, and that the money is coming to them and they can still pay for their groceries and things like that. And um, I ended up getting together with the Maine treasurer and the Nevada treasurer because they're a lot larger than us. And uh, we've got some, I have great relationships with those treasurers and I've, I have great relationships across the state, but they were facing a similar challenge with um, procuring plastic. And so we were able to get a um, manufacturer to, um, to, to basically help us uh, out and, um, and, and get us all plastic that we needed and, and, um, and ensure that people got paid. Yeah. I hadn't even, um, there's so much I don't think about cause you just are not privy to it, but something as simple as that, we were like, why is this taking so long? And you're like, I'm sorry, we did, we didn't plan on needing whatever, 10,000 debit cards, but yeah. in a week. And it's like, oh yeah, there might not have been a like a storage room with leftovers. Yeah, and there there were also um, just all these manufacturers that were shut down yeah. and that they weren't doing sort of in person work and and things like that. And I think for a lot of people, it was it was the challenge of the unknown. You know, no one wanted to put anyone at risk at the yeah. time. And yeah, definitely. Can I go back because the bond thing is kind of interesting. I tried to have like a little intellectual flex this summer and read The Intelligent Investor by David Graham, I think. Is oh, his name. OK. Yeah. Apparently the dude who inspired Warren Buffett. And he talked about bonds. And um, I want to kind of, I guess, maybe if it's worth it, if you think it's worth it to talk about that a little, because I thought I heard you say you don't set the rate but the AAA bond rating is very important. And then I don't understand why bonds matter. How does that make people money? What, why do you matter to bonds in Delaware? Okay. Um, or is that right, a waste well, of time? Is that like completely geeky, stupid rabbit hole? No, no, or is... I mean, so I love talking about that stuff um, and being a total geek about bonds. Um, so hopefully we don't, for your, <laughs> no, I your guess, listeners, and I'll, I'll say it in a very simple way. So like David Graham, I guess was basically like, as part of the premise was like stocks and bonds, right? And do you mm -hmm. trust in a bond, which typically is extremely safe, but a lower return on investment versus a stock. So you buy DuPont at the wrong time and you're screwed. If you buy a bond at the, at whenever time, it's just slow trickle, come back to you. now. Boom or bust with stocks, bonds seem more slow, steady. And I guess that's, I had not thought of like buying Delaware state bonds myself and I, I, I swing trade. So now I'm kind of like, man, this might be something where I allocate a little bit of my IRA money. Maybe I go with, just put it in my portfolio to have some something more solid with the market being what it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I'll just to talk about from a from an issuer standpoint. So Delaware as a bond issuer, um, what does it mean for the the average taxpayer that we have a AAA rating? First, I'll say that we're one of a handful of states that has a AAA rating. Um, you know, Vermont lost their AAA rating, um, and you know, again, I think a lot of us were sort of a little nervous that we would be in a similar position. Um, Delaware is pretty small. Uh, and yet, because of the fact that we are uh, small and we work well internally and sort of t together as a collective, it means that generally we're very responsible with um, 
with the finances, and that helps to ensure that we maintain our AAA rating. Why does that matter to the taxpayer? It's kind of like a mortgage or any other sort of debt vehicle. So in, if you've got a great credit report and you're going to purchase a house, it means that you're going to get the best rate um, for that purchase. So you're going to get 2.5% on your 30-year mortgage, and you have 30 years to pay it back. Um, in general, we have about a 20 to 30 year bond issuance and, uh, right at the early onset of the pandemic, we had the best historical rates we've ever had. It was about one and a half percent on that, um, borrowed money. What does that mean? It means that we expand our schools. We pay for roads and bridges. We, um, pay for water infrastructure and things like that at, at a really extremely low rate. And that means that taxes remain stable and relatively low. It means that we can fund, um, you know, larger uh, infrastructure projects that are really vital to our communities in a way that is uh, not burdensome to taxpayers. Um, and, and again, the, having the best rating means that you, um, you also, so when I first came into office, the, uh, the general tradition was not to do a competitive sale. What that means is that large banks and investment institutions are looking to purchase bonds, like you said. Um, and if you do a pre-negotiated sale, that means that whatever the market is looking at, like, like right now, if it's two and a half percent, let's say, um, you're going to come to me and we'll make a deal. Like, All right, we're going to issue X number of dollars of bonds and you're going to offer me two and a half percent. But when you're a triple A rated state and I sort of came in and said, why are we doing these pre-negotiated sales when we are a triple A rated state? And that's like a diamond in the rough. It's, it's a really, um, high value everybody. And the, and quite frankly, the municipal market has had a real boom in the last few years, um, where there are a lot of investors, there's not a lot in the market. And I just said, you know, if you look at some of the activity that's going on right now, and again, that was back in early 2019, um, we've got a real opportunity to take advantage of. And so for the first time we did, for the first time in like eight years, we did a competitive sale, had really great rates um, and really made out very well. But those are a lot of the reasons why we structure a bond issuance in those ways. It's like to take advantage of the fact that we're a triple A rated state, to take advantage of the low interest rate environment, um, and to take advantage of the fact that we are a diamond in the rough. We, we, you know, we're a real solid and secure investment. So I did get a little lost there because it went yeah. from Delaware right. borrowing money to Delaware. I, I don't even know if Delaware was issuing bonds, but being able to purchase bonds like as an investor. So is it, yeah. can you, not that you did a bad job explaining it. I'm just, like I said, I think I made it to chapter 10 on the intelligent investor and it's an 800 page book. And I'm like, man, this is overwhelming. I'm just going to buy crypto instead. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. I was just kidding. <laughs> um, so, so that's what a bond is. A bond is our assurance that we're going to repay a debt. Okay. Right. And so when you as an investor are purchasing a bond, you're essentially saying, I trust that Delaware is going to repay their debt because historically they've done that, uh, because historically 
um, uh, states, you know, in, in general that are, that are AAA rated means that they uh, overall are managing their money uh, kind of across the board. And Moody's, S&P, uh, Kroll, and Fitch are all rating agencies that sort of run us through our paces. They want to know a lot of detail about how and when we spend, uh, what we, you know, when we um, pay our bills and, and things like that, how much cash we have on hand, things like that. Just like if you are going to purchase a, a large, uh, like a home or something mm -hmm. like that. So then can I actually buy a Delaware bond like on my Fidelity account? You can. Um, the biggest challenge is that Delaware does not issue as many bonds as other entities. So for example, you mentioned DuPont. There are a lot of corporations that will issue debt, which is what a bond is, right? And um, corporations and other states that sort of tend to have larger infrastructure projects and things like that, or even U.S. Treasury, um, like you could you could purchase a, a U.S. bond um, probably a little more easily than you could a Delaware bond. We just don't have as many in circulation. Okay. And what's the point of not having as many in circulation? You don't want to risk the accumulation of debt where there's not a need to use the debt because infrastructure is getting funded in other ways. Both. Okay. So we, we have a general cap on the amount of um, uh, debt we will issue. Uh, and we also, it's, it's our debt limit. And we also... Um, it just, we also don't have as many large infrastructure projects that we need just because we're a smaller state. Gotcha. So then Delaware, and I can, I don't know if you're comfortable with me making up numbers, but it helps me to like play out the scenario. So Delaware's like, hey, we need to fix a road, bond gets issued. And because we're so good at always paying back our debt, we charge a lower in or we get to sell bonds for a lower interest rate. So if we need a thousand dollars, we're going to borrow a thousand dollars at one and a half percent versus I probably should use millions, right? Like why would Delaware borrow a thousand dollars? So you're borrowing a million and you get it at one and a half percent because the people who give up that million dollars are assured to get it back. Exactly. Yep. Okay. Yep. And, um, and the nice thing for Delaware in general is that that money is sort of paid back over time. So we secure that very low interest rate today for an extended period of time. Okay. So then it's spread out through multiple budgets and that just like carries over from whatever the 2022 budget to the 2023, 2024. It's just the line item that says we're scheduled to pay this much at this time. Yep. So yep. then COVID rolls around and we're worried about a budget deficit, which means the decisions like legislators would have to make would be, do we default or not pay back on a bond? Or would it just like, I guess that's why I'm curious with how the deficit would have affected the bond rating. Um, so there are a couple of ways in which the deficit affects the bond rating. The biggest one is liquidity. So when we talk about liquidity, we're really talking about how much cash do we have on hand? How much cash is tied up in investments? How much cash do we have kind of flowing out to pay bills? Um, and the more cash that you have on hand, particularly at the outset of the pandemic, 
the more solid an investment we were. Um, and so as a general rule, when we started to kind of hit that turbulent time, um, I was calling our uh, investors and I was saying, we've got to dump corporate paper in uh, specific areas because it's gonna, those are going to be Im impacted by this infection that has started to kind of wreak havoc. Um, that was at sort of the end of February. And um, if you remember, the state shut down, I think the last day that uh, I, my team did like a soft um, work remote on Friday, March 13th. Yeah. So it was an in-service yeah. day for teachers. And we were like kids on a snow day almost. We we're like rumor was getting out about, yeah, we're going to be gone for two weeks. And it started whatever, eight in the morning on that Friday. Yeah. Yeah. So, so for us, it was like, let's see how well everyone does working from home uh, starting Friday. By that point, we made sure that everyone had their screens and computers all set up and et cetera, et cetera. My point is just that um, having the liquidity that we needed to ensure that we were going to pay our bills in the, you know, short and sort of medium term meant that we were taking on fewer losses and fewer potential losses. Um, so with a $255 million revenue shortfall that we were sort of facing, it was also about, you know, can we cover what we have in the near term? Like I said, like, these are all the bills that we've got coming due. And I don't, I don't mean bills. I mean, like all the variety of needs, right? Um, so kind of across the board, you mentioned earlier before we started recording pension checks, you know, things like that, that are sort of vital that we make sure that we, we, we have flowing outward. Um, and, and so the first step was ensuring that we essentially, um, or took care of those essential, um, bills that we knew were rolling out on a, any given period. Um, and then the second was, and the legislature I think was really good at sort of taking that pause and waiting for the requests. So when we talk about requests, we mean like, um, you know, budgetary requests that go from one point to another, you know, so year on year, you might have uh, one department that's, that needs a little bit more in spending than another. And I think everyone was kind of just, just on pause and just kind of waiting. Um, so, you know, <laughs> I will say facing that shortfall meant that we were looking at how we were going to be sort of tightening the belt and making sure that the essentials were getting taken care of, the real needs, and then the other things that maybe, you know, we could kind of hold off on spending um, was, was sort of the focus. As a real stupid side note, because it was the first time I felt like an adult, I want to say it was Jack Markell in 08 after like the stock market crash, the big short thing. And this poor dude's in an auditorium and he's like talking, I believe it was just to like state employees about what's going to happen. And it was like, I'm, we can't give out raises this year. I'm so sorry. And he was like, and teachers, you no longer get free college classes. And this dude got blast. I mean, like people were, I mean, it, it was not like violently, but the aggression you could hear in the tone. And it was so, I, I just felt so uncomfortable for the guy. Cause I, 
I get the perspective of someone who's earning way less than someone in office, but at the same time, the state itself has like, it's hard since you're so big to make such quick decisions in the short term, I would think, because you're like a cruise ship. You're not like a skiff, <laughs> you know, it's like, it takes a lot to get something done on an entire state level, the bigger it is. It just takes, it's harder to pivot. That's true. I mean, that that's true. But, but at the same time, I think like, I think the thing that you always have in the back of your mind is how does this impact the individual? You know, how does this impact the, the, the child that's trying to learn from home? How does this impact the teacher that's trying to teach from home? How does this impact the, um, you know, the municipal worker that we aren't necessarily funding, but their town is no longer receiving the revenue from maybe, you know, parking meters and, you know, things like that. So you do kind of, you, you have to think about the ways in which those funds don't necessarily trickle down to every single individual and the ways in which we have to compensate to ensure that every kid has, you know, internet access or, you know, things like that, where, you know, for example, our courier system was much less necessary because uh, we, you know, folks were working primarily from home. And then all of a sudden it became even more necessary. So there were certain kind of ebbs and flows in, in certain um, line items and, and uh variety of different expenditures that you wouldn't have necessarily expected to need to adjust over time. Is it, this might be really weird because I don't know how it works. Do legislators go to you and they're like, Hey, I need five mil or are you like doling out, Hey, district blank, you getting 12 mil. Or is it like, like most of life, like more like a negotiation where you put stakeholders in and you just try to figure it out together. Um, no. So like, just like I was saying, like the allocation does not occur. I I'm not involved in allocation at all. At all. Okay. Right. It's, it's almost entirely the legislature. So for example, right now, uh, the governor is taking budgetary requests right now through the office of management and budget. And, um, and they're, you know, so for example, they're, they're called door openers. And um, you might be saying, hey, I've got this new position that I need funded, you know, $50,000 a year plus benefits or something like that. Um, you have some agencies that are asking for several individuals, things like that, those door openers or budgetary requests that you're making for the upcoming year are rolling in right now the governor takes that information and then rolls out with his rec his or her recommended budget uh, around the end of the calendar year. So in like the December timeframe, they're really kind of finalizing what that uh, recommended budget is gonna look like. And then by January, um, everyone is aware of, of what the governor's recommended budget is. Usually the state of the state kind of puts a fine point on where the, um, you know, the, the governor's agenda might be, um, it sort of comes through in the state of the state and then legislature goes through joint finance committee, 
all of their markups and things like that. So they're kind of saying, yeah, you might need a position for $50,000 plus benefits um, uh, as far as, you know, salary goes and things like that. But we're going to give you only X amount or we're going to give you, you know, whatever that might look like. They're going to do the markup process and then um, they'll make their own recommended budget. And uh, and and so that's why it kind of requires a lot of, you know, collaboration across all the legislators and the governor. And so then your role is just to make the pie. You don't get to divide it. Or is that too much of an oversimplification? Or your job is to really help make sure the pie is as big as possible and people can get as many slices of it as they want. Yeah, exactly. And okay. and the bond issuance is kind of separate. Um, and then, you know, when we're looking at investments for um, state employees, that's the same sort of thing. We're looking to make sure that those funds are securely invested and that they're growing over time and that... Um, the closer you get to retirement age, the more secure those investments are and the less growth you might see. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it really, it's a lot of like securely transacting. I think the only other thing that I really didn't touch on was um, the transacting portion. So whenever you pay a, you know, um, a fine or a fee or even taxes online to the state, those transactions are made uh, possible by my office. So all the merchant services, um, if you go to like a Cape football game, uh, we supply the vendor that uh, does all the credit card transactions. So we make sure that those transactions are done securely. And, um, and yeah, there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot of transactional responsibility as well as investment responsibility, but yeah. And you really enjoy that, huh? You can't. <laughs> I love it. I love I'm it. just looking yeah. at the pressure of this. And this is your, 2018 was your first time running for a government position, running for an election? Yeah, yeah I never ran before. That's right. Yeah. Can we, maybe I should have started there. That might've made a little more sense timeline wise. Like, why did you want to get into dealing with bonds and securing transactions? So, um, I, uh, I'll just start by saying I grew up in Sussex County. I uh, graduated from Indian River High School and um, had a lot of experiences that were, um, you know, maybe typical. Um, I saw a lot of people that uh, graduated around me who were full of potential and did not necessarily always realize that potential. Mm. Um, and I, and I think that's true of a lot of folks, but it was, uh, it, it was tough to kind of see. Uh, I'll jump forward. My um, undergraduate degree, I'm a scientist, uh, and I went on to uh, get my master's and as a physician assistant, and I specialized in neurosurgery. Um, I practiced for about 18 years uh, as a physician assistant and... Um, covered a level one trauma center, which meant we saw kind of the whole gamut of the reality of life and, you know, um, what happens in people's lives um, and helped kind of carry people through the process of, of dying from cancer to the process of recovering from major traumatic events and, uh, and surviving. Um, 
in the midst of all of that, there was a huge shortfall when it came to not only insurance coverage, but um, you know, I don't think I ever saw a patient who didn't desperately need to be cared for. Um, in in the in the realm of neurosurgery, you're not coming to see a neurosurgeon because uh, headache it's for fun. a week. Yeah, it's just hey, this was my excitement for today, yeah. right? It's because it's necessary. And um, you know, again, I think people ended up coming into uh, the hospital in dire circumstances and leaving with huge, massive, insurmountable bills that um, you know they couldn't get out from underneath of. And, um, and I think that, uh, so, so that sort of, uh, caused me to then, uh, pursue becoming a consultant in the healthcare industry. I helped a number of small practices that were one physician, um, all the way up to major healthcare systems, um, to sort of revamp their, uh, their financial structure and the ways in which they were caring for patients. I went back to school at University of Pennsylvania, ended up um, uh, getting certified in public finance. And again, just trying to sort of endeavor to help people because it all kind of comes back to the finances and the ways in which we're able to pay for things, reduce costs and and provide better care. So uh, in any case, was very frustrated with some of what was going on and uh, with the challenge of trying to um, better a really large system that, uh, as you said, does not move quickly, does not pivot well. Dude, if people think the state of Delaware is slow, try dealing with medical anything, like an insurance provider or like, um, it's not exactly like you're saying, but like even I was dealing with some like Chase credit card stuff and I'm going nuts. I'm like, yeah, this is literally 23 hours of my life to deal with a $200 bill. And I'm like, what? Like, I should be able to sue you for my time. And insurance is even more of a headache. When I've had people who've had surgeries and they've had to fight things like, what is this itemized aspirin right here? You really have to charge me $150 for this aspirin? So did you ask? Maybe he didn't want the aspirin. Why, why did you give him? Are you upcharging us? And then all this anxiety on top of like, the stress of just dealing with the loss of income, the throwing your schedule off, the potential loss of life. Like it's the finances should be the least of the concern when it comes to a human life. And it shouldn't be a consideration into care. You shouldn't have to make a choice of like, do I really want the ambulance ride? I don't know. Yeah. And, and yet people are compelled to make that decision yeah. in a moment of absolute crisis, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so, so I, uh, through my own frustration and, and, um, and, and again, you know, I think the one thing that I will say is that I don't know a single person who got into the field of medicine, uh, whether it be as an emergency medical tech or a nurse or a paramedic or a physician or a physician assistant or, or anyone, I don't know a single person in the healthcare profession uh, who has the intent of like, you know, driving people into debt 
or, you know, that kind of thing. I think everyone really endeavors to try to lift people up and to provide care. Um, so in any case, <laughs> um, through my frustration, I, uh, did a lot of outreach and was trying to do a lot of work with several different individuals and, um, you know, in the midst of it all, uh, one of the things that the treasurer does is um, I'm a member of the state employee benefits committee. And as a member of the state employee benefits committee, you impact the ways in which we provide care to our state employees, which is a, a significant uh, portion of the state uh, population. And, um, and again, I, I wanted to uh, have an impact again, in sort of the financial realm of how we uh, do things better. Because I think, again, you know, healthcare is one portion of it, and it's an extremely important portion, but it's not, like, if you look at the, a lot of the problems that we have across a variety of different sectors, um, you know, some of the greatest challenges are related to financial burden. Um, and this is, this is not me trying to do a gotcha moment. This is me kind of having a thought exercise and exploring because I'm very interested when you had said people not fulfilling their potential. And um, I actually had Jessica Scarain who was running, um, I think in 2020 for House. And she completely convinced me that I'm pro universal healthcare. Because she, her basic argument was like, it actually helps industry because people aren't tied to a job they can then go create. And they don't have to worry about staying at a job to have your benefits provided for you. Now, as a state employee, as a teacher, I love my benefits. Thank you for your work. Whatever you figured out, I have incredible coverage. I know multiple teachers who have dealt with many ailments. And they were like, I'd be screwed if I didn't have my benefits. So I feel like the majority of teachers, at least in my circle, love them. How come we can't just have like everyone in Delaware, almost like a Medicare for like everyone kind of a thing? Is that like too pie in the sky? Would like, do we do we need to get in the Bitcoin game to get this happening? Just another crypto joke. Sorry. <laughs> um, you you are a uh, you, you must be a huge fan of crypto. I'm, not, I'm so scared of it. I heard about it. It's so stupid. I heard about it when it was like a thousand three years ago and I was like, I can't wrap my head around it. So I'm not going to go. And then when it was up to 60 and now I'm to the point where I'm like, it's such a novelty that I'm almost like the <laughs> meme stocks like AMC or GameStop where I'm just like amused by the validity, volatility of it. You yeah. Know? Like it's bu yeah. buster boom, complete buster boom. It's true. I mean, I would have told you several weeks ago as interest rates were rising to quickly dump it as quickly as you possibly could. Um, but, uh, but, but I, sorry to go back to, um, in all seriousness, to go back to your question about, um, why don't we have a single payer sort of model? Um, I, I think that we're, we're getting to a place where we really need to be intentional about the ways in which we try to solve this problem uh, because it's, it's actually getting worse and worse and we're all kind of watching it get worse and worse. And the solutions are so scary for some people because I think a single payer model um, 
you know, it's new. So it's very, very scary for a lot of people. I think not only the, the providers, but also patients and kind of everybody in between. Um, I think there are some states that did do this and have done it well. And I think there's potential for uh, taking those lessons learned. Um, and, and I think that one of the things that does tend to happen for Delaware is we get a lot of people with a lot of ideas that want to test it out in Delaware because we're small. Sample size, yeah, it helps. Yeah, yeah. So we're the pilot for every other state. Um, and I, you know, my thought is, why don't you try it in South Dakota because they're they now have a smaller population than us. And uh... <laughs> I've heard Montana too has about a million people. Um, it, the speaking with people who have come on the pod, I've had quite a many Canadian on the pod. And they said mm-hmm. they hate their healthcare system for like regular checkups, love okay. it for catastrophic stuff on their single payer system. I've had mothers who were like, it was awesome. I got no bill when I gave birth, but I knew mm-hmm. I only had a midwife who came to my home for, I think she said 18 hours. She was like, I got seven hours after the birth. And then it took me nine months to find a primary care physician for my kid because they were booked and like, so that's the fear. So this is what I try to do. Like as an individual, I'm balancing like my entrepreneur adventurer of if I wasn't tied to being a teacher for my benefits, which are great, my vision for, for my, my kid, my kid has great benefits. And like, it's Mm -hmm. so nice to not have to worry about that. And it doesn't seem to cost me a ton, right? Like I still am able to have a pretty good paycheck. I'm not, I've heard small businesses or people who pay for their own. It's like 250, $300 a week for insurance. And I'm like, I can't imagine. But then at the same time, I don't want to have this system where I don't get to like pick a doctor or I can't get an appointment. You know, I always have to like go to emergency room for every little thing, which kills Mm -hmm. the system as well. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I don't even know if this is like your department. It's just interesting that you're at that benefits table, which is why I was bringing it up. Yeah, I mean, so so some of the things that I do are not necessarily... um, within the requirements of my job, but they are in the th- with the thought of sort of ensuring that our healthcare system is um, meeting all of our citizens' needs. So one of the things that we did, um, my very first bond issuance was actually for one of our state hospitals, one of our hospitals in the state um, to do an expansion. And that's considered infrastructure that helps our entire community, uh, which is why it's, it's really vital to ensure that we've got good hospitals. But, um, one of the things that we face on a national level and and Delaware is right in there, as far as our statistics is just what you're describing in Canada, we are facing a, a shortage of primary care physicians and primary care includes pediatrics, geriatrics, um, obstetrics and gynecology and family medicine. And so when we talk about primary care, we're talking about kind of the the full spectrum of your regular doctor visits um, and things like that. Um, Those are individuals that we are facing a huge shortage of over the next few years and kind of into the long term. I think we have to have a multi-tiered approach to ensure that we've got good health care. Uh, so coverage is one side of it, but the other side of it is ensuring that we're growing the population of healthcare professionals. 
um, and, and very well-trained healthcare professionals, because one of the things that is absolutely true is on a um, worldwide level, we are known for amazing care. Um, we're known for the research uh, that gets done. And, um, and I think that, you know, our teaching hospitals cannot uh, perform some of these clinical trials that are so essential if we're not, you know, funding that, that um, research and those, those clinical trials. Uh, particularly in some of the more what are called orphan diseases or diseases that only impact a smaller number of individuals mm. because, you know, our major pharmaceutical companies companies don't make enough money off of that research to make it worthwhile, and yet it's really crucial. Talk about a public-private balance. Um, but I don't... Is any of that within, like, your realm decision-making wise, like, could you, because again, like, I think it would be a legislator thing to be like, hey, top doctors, we'll pay off your medical debt if you serve in Delaware for 10 years, kind of a thing. Or is that like a you decision? Or do you have lunch with someone and like, hint, hint, kind of a thing? Yeah, so so we do a lot of um, supporting our uh, professionals and things like that in a variety of different ways. As an example, Sean, I don't know if you participated in our recent seminar that uh, that we put together for public service loan forgiveness. Um, no, but I did take advantage of it in the, I thought it was federal where I was in a tier or a title nine school for five years as special education teacher. And I had like 17.5 forgiven of my student loan. So, um, but that might be different. I don't want to divert you, but I have taken advantage of a program. I did not know of this one. So the public service loan forgiveness is something that the Biden administration ensured um, was uh, more flexible than it's ever been. So many teachers uh, have complained over the years that they were duped and sort of thought that they were in this program uh, that they put in their years and then found out that they were not eligible mm. and um, unfairly found out. So uh, just recently, the Biden administration um, expanded the rule and uh, is allowing teachers and other public service uh, members to have uh, loan forgiveness if they have. And for teachers, it, it is slightly different. It's five years. Um, for other public service loan, um, you know, members who have student loans. So for example, if you worked for the state or even municipal government, you, uh, if you've paid regularly for 10 years, you can have all of your loans forgiven, not just, you know, 16,000 or whatever. Some of, some of the other programs had a limit. This is a full forgiveness of your loans. No, after paying for 10 years. Right. Wow. Did it, does it matter the degree? It doesn't. Oh my gosh. Yeah, because uh, what we're finding is that in public service, you're making a lot less than you might make in the public sector, I mean the private sector, and um, you're really a service member. You're providing a service to, you know, to your community. And so um, that was the whole purpose of creating that uh, loan forgiveness vehicle. The only problem is there's a timestamp on it. You have to apply by October 31st of this year. 
And so um, even though my office is not responsible for doing this, uh, we ensured that we put out several seminars to help coach people through the process because it's still somewhat confusing. And, um, and again, we've been on a mission to just make sure that uh, state employees understand how to do it, why they should do it, and, um, and, and whether they may or may not be eligible. So state employee, and uh, what would people Google to find this? Um, well, you can, you can go to my website. So it's treasurer.delaware.gov and it's public service loan forgiveness or PSLF. And if you have been paying regularly, so if you've been making your monthly payments or does it count if you've deferred for a time, do you actually have to be making payments for the 10 years? So for example, let's say you took some time off, but you've put in 10, you know, it's been 10 years since you graduated and you've paid eight years worth of your loan. You can consolidate and apply to be part of this loan forgiveness, finish out the last two years and you, whatever is left on your loan is then forgiven. So your spot would be saved even if you're, so if I have eight years to go, I can still apply for this. And then eight years down the road, my spot is saved and whatever remains would be paid off. Right. Right. Oh, wow. You should. And that, again, the whole purpose was that it was supposed to be this easy. It was, you know, you're, you didn't become a teacher to make tons and tons of money, but are you a teacher and also saddled with debt? You know, that's, that's why um, this entire program was developed several years ago. And it's just been so difficult for so many people that, uh, that recently they made changes. I got to start reading those emails. God, all I do is delete them right away. The valuable information. What else have I been missing out on? I'm trying to help you. That could change my life. Thank you. Great. Great Um, But, but I have heard, in fact, I I heard from the, right after our first uh, seminar, I had a teacher reach out to me and she said, thank you so much. I've just had $60,000 worth of debt, just completely wiped out. And she said, I have three children and now I feel confident that I'm going to be able to send them to college, you know. And, and on top of that, I bet you a bunch of them are going to pivot that money into a 529, into the 403B, into an IRA, because now you just have that discretionary income. And I even wonder how many would be willing to take on student debt, like to get a master's degree. Right. And then now you've increased your income. And then you're like, okay, I know it's going to suck for a couple years while I pay this offer for whatever, however many years, but like... I do know if I don't get it paid off by that time, I have some support that it's an yeah. appreciative thing. Man, that's awesome. And all this time you've been making those payments. And so again, like as far as the impact on your wallet and your budget, you know you can make those payments. So sometimes it just makes it so much easier to build wealth, prepare for college, you know, for your kids, or as you said, yeah, to take on another degree. Yeah, man. God, I love that. I love... I really like ideas that encourage class jumping, economic class jumping, where it's like, here's something that could help me. So I served in the National Guard and I feel like it really helped me to go from lower class to middle class because it was like, hey, we were on whatever food stamps. And it's like, I came back from basic with $4,000 in my bank account. And I had no idea. You have no idea how nice it was to know like if my car broke down, I could actually either go put a down payment on one or pay to get it fixed and I wouldn't lose my job. 
And like just that basic relief was like, ha. Ah. And then it's I had you. the opportunity of college and I'm like, dude, degree, I'm, I'm, I'm solid, you know? And it was awesome. And this is something that can be economically class. If you talk about lower middle class to middle, middle class or upper middle class, or maybe you wind up buying your home or upgrading something that's been bothering you. Or it's just, I like, I like when government does that, when they try to help class economic class jumping. Well, and we've done a number of different things to sort of um, achieve that. So as an example, um, we developed the Aspire 529, which is a grant program that um, helps foster youth that are aging out um, and want to go on to college or trade school or um, technical school. Um, it helps them to cover their expenses um, and just as an example, we could have a student who reaches out who is um, some, somewhere between 18 and 26 and says, you know, hey, treasurer, I just had, you know, a tire on my car go and I need uh, help with that. We are um, helping to provide some of those uh, grant funds to, um, to help foster youth to maintain their education, their educational goals and things like that. And so, um, you know, pay for books, pay for software that they might need and, and things like that. Um, so, and I, and I think about that because I think, you know, I've, I've got a handful of friends who uh, were part of the foster system. Um, and it's, you know, uh, just as an example, uh, their mother passed away their father couldn't care for them, started drinking really heavily and just could not, um, could, just couldn't handle what he was facing. It was, um, had a really hard time. And they ended up going into foster care and got an education through trade school. And um, uh, each one of the, the three brothers that I'm close with became different tradesmen. So one does HVAC, one does plumbing, and one is uh, in construction. They each have families that are stable. They have, they're married and have children um, and have, you know, sort of their contribution, not only to society is so huge, but also to their, um, you know, the, the economy overall is, yeah. is huge. And so if we take a moment to invest in those kids that um, are seeking something more, uh, it, it comes back to us in so many different ways. And, um, and I think the impact is so huge that, uh, that I was really excited to get this program off the ground. And, um, I think we have 16 kids right now. I say kids, they're not really, kids. I know. They're, they're kids to you and I, I, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but I've got, I've got 16 young adults who've applied for this grant program and we just rolled it out a few weeks ago. And so I'm, I'm really excited to, to know that we're making an impact in that way. Um, yeah, I've heard of um, a bunch of kids getting into um, the truck driving. They love, and I know with automation, it's like, it could be like, oh, you're in a dead end job or whatever. But aside from that, they love the fact that there's their ambition allows them to make as much as they want. And they're their own boss. They kind of get to set their own hours. They're on the road. And then they get this like free time schedule wise. And like, I, I've actually had a student I taught come on the pod. And he was like, I think it was like, yeah, the class was like $800. He's like, how much did your bachelor's cost you? And I was like, 
were making the same company. He was like, how much did you make with your bachelor's, Mr. Grady? And I was like, I think I was like maybe 40. He was like, dude, I was making that in like half a year and I had to spend $800. But the fact that like, if he didn't have it, now it seems like there's something out there for people seeking trades to get assistance who don't want to go to college, which is awesome because you want to be productive after high school. You don't want to do nothing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Dude, great, great call. Um, yeah. And we, we just, uh, about a week ago, uh, we we got the governor to sign some monumental legislation, uh, something called Delaware earns, uh, Delaware earns is also, uh, has a focus on helping to close the wealth gap, sort of what you're describing, um, that classing up, if you will, that, um, essentially what it does is, um, provides a publicly offered retirement fund for all Delaware um, residents that are not currently offered something through their employer. Uh, I saw that. Mm-hmm. So in a similar way where the, you know, the focus really is, is uh, trying to, to help people not only to save for retirement, but again, to sort of help close that wealth gap, ensure that individuals are in a position to retire with dignity and, um, and, and with some real money in their pocket. Well, and it also helps your borrowing because you got an asset. So it that's adds true. to your credit. I mean, that's a huge thing to be like, well, I, I don't have much of my savings. Like, oh, well, you have a retirement account, so you do have savings. Sometimes like you don't yeah. realize that. Um, so mm-hmm. would that be like just like a VOIA managed thing where people are like, hey, I'm contributing $200. And the reason I ask, I opened up an IRA recently and I thought I just picked IRA and I thought I just gave it $200 and then it like figured out what, how to like compound the interest. And Fidelity was like, nah, you got to pick some stocks. And I'm like, no, 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 the whole point was I didn't want to pick stocks. I want like Voya does that for me. And I understand I pay a little fee for my 403B, but like the IRA, I had to pick stocks. So would people actually have to have like knowledge of the stock market to take advantage? Or is it one of those you're trusting Voya or whatever institution to make the financial decision for you. Yeah. So, um, so the way Fidelity works it, before we had Voya is very much the same as the way Voya works, and uh, the way it would work for uh, individuals in this program. The first thing is everything is we we put out a request for proposal because as a um, government entity, everything has to be transparent. So we kind of have to put something out that says this is exactly what we're looking for. As a company, you have the opportunity to bid on that. Hmm. Um, And essentially what we look for is how great a product do you have? Um, What are you charging for uh, the support that we're looking for? And, does it fit? Does it fit with what we're, we're looking to do? So um, what we currently have with Voya is a couple of options. One is, as you said, you just sort of, you, you send your money in and you don't have to think twice about it. We have a full board that looks at all the investment options and ensures that Voya has a platform of different investment options that make a lot of sense. Sometimes we'll ask them to... For example, we'll put a fund manager on watch and we'll say, you know, we're not sure about these guys. Their performance hasn't been as great or they've had some leadership changes or things that make us a little bit leery. Let's put them on watch. Sometimes we'll swap them out and say, you know what, they're doing a terrible job. Their performance isn't great. Let's pull them. Voya, we want you to put such and such, you know, um, 
group in, in their place. Uh, that process is, is kind of done at the board level. It's all very transparent. We meet on a regular basis and ensure that uh, anyone is available to kind of listen in and um, participate in the process. Um, but then there's also an option of a self-directed um, brokerage, which essentially means that you have a variety of different options. You can go in, you can choose how you want to invest in the same way you're describing your IRA. Um, with fidelity. Just and don't do the Bitcoin. Leave the Bitcoin out of it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, oh, dude, that's awesome. So if people want to like actually read up and kind of use it as an experience to learn how to trade, now they kind yeah. of have this means. So why wouldn't they, and this might be a real stupid question, what would be the advantage of doing a Delaware earns versus just calling up Voya themselves or calling up Fidelity themselves? Because oftentimes what happens is I, and I had this experience myself is, um, uh, for example, I went from one employer where I had a 401k, that employer was kind of um, closing up shop. They said, we're no longer going to have this 401k. We're sort of, you've got to take your, your 401k and transition it. A lot of people don't know that if you don't, take that those funds and put them directly into another vehicle, you have to pay taxes on it and fees for early withdrawal. And sometimes you just receive a check in the mail and you know it's it's on you to figure out. Um, but um, I had a lot of money. I mean what I thought was a lot of money. And I went to an advisor and I said, you know, can I open uh, a, a brokerage with you, a, an account with you, and uh, and can you invest the funds for me? And they said, yeah, we we really don't do that until you have over you know hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, that's happened to me a couple times. I felt I was like, okay, see you later. It's 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 demoralizing. It is demoralizing. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know what we're talking about is a lot of folks. Um, that are in the low to low moderate uh, income sort of range in Delaware that are not offered a 401k and they're, they're not going to be able to take $50 a week and, and say to someone, hey, could you invest this for me? Most of the time, that initial investment is going to cost them so much that their return is, is really not going to be there. And it's really tough. I mean, quite frankly, it's hard to save up enough on your own to get to a point where someone does want to take your funds and help you invest them. Um, when we do it as a, a larger scale in the way that we're already doing it for state employees and uh, in a variety of other endowments and investment vehicles for a variety of things, 529 is one, Aspire 529 is another, uh, ABLE is another, and then a few other endowments that, that I manage as well. You know, we can spread the, the work across um, what we're currently doing. And so the, the cost burden is not there in the same way that it would be. If I asked an advisor to do this, they wouldn't be able to keep the lights on. For an individual. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. So then by pooling the money, you can get a company that's as large as Fidelity, Voya, whoever, um, to make it worth their while and probably charge less of a percent. Because like I know... Boy, whatever, I, I, I'll make up a, like 0.3% a fee, whatever quarterly gets taken out. And it's like, okay, because you're making decisions about 
how to move it or whatever, keeping an eye on the stocks that make up my portfolio. That makes right. sense. Right. And, and the one thing that I will say is that the, the previous treasurer, um, Ken Simpler, who made the decision to switch from Fidelity to Voya, or I guess it wasn't just Fidelity, there were so many legacy accounts. Um, that process, he saved a lot of money for participants. They ensured that rates were as low as possible. And they were able to negotiate that because they were pooling together about 39,000 accounts. And I will say he really put Voya through their paces in ensuring that one, the cost was going to be really as low as possible. Two, that uh, state employees would have face-to-face -face interaction with an advisor through Voya, a Voya rep. Um, and, and three, that there was real transparency. One of the things that he discovered was that Fidelity was not uh, straightforward in what they were charging state employees. And um, it was not clear on the statements. It was not, um, it was not very transparent. And I will you know, give him kudos because it was a lot of work. And I think that they did a really phenomenal job in uh, making sure that, that state employees um, got a good product at the best possible rate. And this is so stupid, but I just love saying stupid things. He was a Republican, right? And you're a Democrat and you just yeah. gave a compliment. So not only are you super smart and hardworking and very pleasant to talk to, you're complimentary and you're not one of, it doesn't seem like you're super polar. Like you respect someone who does good stuff, Oh yeah. <laughs> which I love. I absolutely love to hear out of people running for office that it's like, oh, well, I can't give someone credit from another party. That would be bad. It's awesome that you're that kind of person. Thank you for being that kind of person. Oh, no. I mean, um, I think that you you have to give credit where credit's absolutely due. And um, yeah, no, I think he, he did a fantastic job. And, um, and, uh, and I think it's, um, you know, the, the nice thing is, he is continuing to serve in a, in a, a different capacity and, uh, um, and, and that's always good too. Okay. Yeah. That, so then let's actually go back. Cause I never got to hear the story. How do you, I, we know the why you got into politics, but like, what was the discussion? Somebody approaches you, you just file like, and then you're from Sussex County. You should not be a Democrat, right? Why are you a Democrat? We're the red <laughs> County in Delaware. So do you mind just a little bit about your, filing journey and what the night before was like when you were like, yep, I'm going to do this. Yeah. Um, so to complicate the, the landscape of kind of what, uh, was before me in making this decision, um, my father was the chairman of the Republican party <laughs> and Love I, um, I'm one of eight children and we sort of fall into a very wide spectrum as far as our political views. And so I will say that while I'm one of eight, both of my parents are one of seven. We tend to have at Thanksgiving around 60 or more uh, people gathering. And when we talk about politics, it's a very lively conversation, but full of love and respect. Um, and, and yet, uh, and so that's why I think that, um, one, I'm a Democrat, uh, because, you know, because of, I think the ways in which, um, uh, my experience has shaped my outlook, 
Um, but, uh, but I, but I will say that, uh, my dad was probably my greatest advocate and I never, ever wanted to be involved in politics in the way that he was. I sort of was like, it's all crazy. I don't, I don't want to be involved in the shouting matches and the, and the, you know, vindictive behavior and, and what I saw as very troubling sort of, uh, you know, stuff. Um, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just funny. I feel like anybody pictures that in so many different ways, but then all in the same way of people just being red faced and shouting their points, not trying to understand like what's best for blank. It's just more, this is the view. This is the view versus what would actually be the best solution? Like, let's try to nuts and bolts this thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that, like I said, being, being part of a a really large family that is okay with, you know, from time to time changing your views or being wrong or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it, it also meant that like we came together, argued, uh, saw each other's points and might still disagree, but, but again, could be respectful. Um, and so when, when you see the world of politics on TV, um, you kind of go, that's not a world I want to be involved in. Um, and yet when I felt the frustration of some of the work that I was trying to do as a consultant and getting so far, I mean, really and truly, um, you know, uh, I was able to do quite a bit and I'm, I'm grateful for that experience. And yet there was still so much more. So when I was trying to decide to whether or not to run, first person I talked to, of course, was my husband. And, um, and you know, our kids are still pretty little, but, uh, but my daughter was like two at the time. And um, anyway, long story short, my dad said, you should run, you should definitely, you know, take the opportunity, you've got a lot to give. And so, um, yeah, it, it uh, my husband said, let's do it first. And then uh, I, when I talked to my dad, he said, absolutely. And my mom said the same thing. And the two of them, you know, like, like I told you earlier, my mother's a photographer, I think a lot of the photos that we have uh, <laughs> were, were taken by her. And uh, yeah. How come not be a legislator? Why did you decide to run for this office in particular? Um, so I'll I'll start with um, my my life as a, a scientist. I was involved in developing drugs for um, multiple sclerosis, and um, and in doing that, some of the research that I that I had done and things like that. I'd been um, contacted by a former professor at UPenn whose um, colleague from Princeton had uh, received um, rights to their novel uh, pharmaceutical that they had developed. Long story short, we went from about $300,000 to about three and a half million in a seven month span. And that was all venture capital funding. That's why they pulled me on. They asked me to do some translational medicine. Here's what we're seeing in the Petri dish. We're in the lab. Help us to market this product and figure out how it can be effective in the world of medicine. And um, and then help us to kind of take it on the road and ask investors to invest and and help us um, 
you know, do those kinds of things. And so I was doing grant writing and that type of stuff. But when it comes to things like multiple sclerosis and, um, you know, other, we did research on anti-oncologics, so cancer medications, cancer research, antivirals, which is very important for COVID and things like that. Um, bottom line, it, it all points back to the finances. And that's where my world was at the time. I was sort of in the world of finance, trying to help finance, um, you know, the impact that we were trying to have on the world of medicine, but also um, small business entrepreneurs, uh, things like that. And I really was sort of following the, the ways in which we can be really impactful when it comes to money. Um, so, so that's why a treasurer, you know? Yeah. Well, it, it's funny cause it's such a simple reason to be like, yeah, none of this happens without money. So if I can figure out how to give resources or acquire resources to then be doled out, I'm going to have a huge impact in having a successful Delaware, have an opportunity in Delaware. Mm-hmm. Do you, um, it, you had brought up small business and now I'm kind of curious about, cause we spent so much of our time talking about like state, the state infrastructure for the state. And I guess we got into private business a little bit with the hospital and issuing a bond, but small business wise, do you matter to coffee shops, <laughs> restaurants? How do you matter towards microbreweries, which is the only thing I would care about? <laughs> Um, yeah, so, uh, so one of the ways that, that, uh, I matter is, um, it's just in, uh, helping with economic development. So for example, we get a lot of businesses more recently, uh, post post COVID that are looking to bring their production stateside and Delaware for a variety of different reasons is a great place to set up shop. Um, and you know, they, they call my office and say, how do we set up shop in Delaware? Can you help us? How do we get funding? How, how do we, you know, do these things? And the beauty of not allocating those funds means that I can help people to understand how to navigate without being responsible for the outcome. So for example, someone might come to me and say, we have a portion of our business that is set up in China, which is currently what we're working on with a, a, a company. We have this business that's set up in China. We have issues with um, supply chain and we would like to pull some of that business stateside. How do we do this? And, you know, I'm, I just connect people. I just go, you know, call so-and-so, let's connect you with such and such. And I provide that to anyone that wants the information. It's, you know, sometimes um, it, it, you know, it's not a whole lot of work that we put into it, but it's really impactful to um, growing jobs here and things like that. And then as far as like smaller businesses, like a microbrew that maybe has 10 employees or, you know, something like that. Why do I matter? It's, um, it really kind of comes down to Delaware earns as an example. So it's really tough when you're first starting out just to make ends meet, to keep the lights on, to hire folks and things like that. This is now a benefit when you say, come to work for me here in Delaware. We have this amazing retirement product that is available to everyone. And there's no cost burden on that small business owner. So, um, so that's really huge. Um, 
And it's a way to, again, offer a benefit without the additional burden of figuring out what those investments need to look like, you know, the fiduciary duty that's involved in making sure that those are solid investments and that, um, you know, that, that it's, that it's decent, a decent product. Um, but then additionally, you know, the cost burden. So for small businesses in particular, I think, the office really does matter. And, and our eye has been on ensuring that not only do small businesses survive all that we've gone through in the pandemic, but truly thrive. Um, and, uh, and if they need assistance with being connected, you know, it's one of the things we did through the CARES Act and through ARPA and things like that, just to try to help uh, individuals apply for PPP loans and, um, and other grants and things like that. So, um, none of it's required. None of it is, is things that I have to do. It's just something that, uh, you know, I made myself available to do. Dude, that's so amazing because I, it, it's so frustrating and a personal example of just the $200 I'm trying to get off my credit report from Chase. That was not my fault was theirs. I like I by the time I got to the sixth person, I was like, can you just tell me who I need to talk to that knows how to fix this? That's all I want. And I can't imagine starting a business. But the fact that you're willing to open up with knowing about where money is and who does what to be like, hey, I can I, I can guide you. I'll be your Google. I'll be your Siri. Like, that's <laughs> awesome that you're willing to take the time to do that and that people can take advantage of that. That's <laughs> That's so needed, man, because you just need answers sometimes. Just give me a direction. Just who do I need to talk to is so important. Yeah, I mean, I think um, just as an example, I had a conversation this morning with a person who said, hey, can you give me money to do, you know, X, Y, Z? And I said, no, I can't, but <laughs> here's who you should talk to. And, uh, you know, and here's what you might want to highlight for this, um, this individual that you're going to need help from. Okay. Oh, talking points. God, you are smart. <laughs> Can I, I, I am so impressed. I, I am part of my fear with state. So here's a weird little balance and this is going to be a compliment, but I find myself being financially conservative with administrative costs where I don't know if I'm jealous of the money they make and it's not super astronomical, right? You can Google how much you make. I want to say Google yeah. told me it was about 120 grand, maybe a little less. Yeah. And, and I'm like, for some reason, I'm like, without even knowing you, I was like, you know what? That I feel that's about right. I feel like that's competitive where someone who's smart would want to take that job. I don't want that job making 40 grand. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like I hate administrative costs, but at the same time, I'm, I feel like I'm smart enough to recognize you got to have a competitive wage. Speaking to you, I feel like you're underpaid. I got to be honest with you. I feel like I would go to referendum and try to give you another 20 grand more, um, at least maybe like a 10, 15% pay pump. Because I'm like, you just have such a humanistic individual experience that connects with real people of Delaware, slower, lower Sussex County, but then you have these like city experiences or this like super worldly knowledge that is pretty uncommon for slower, lower. At least it was when I don't want to age you or anything, but I'm 41, graduated Cape 99. Like it was pretty uncommon to have a ton of people go to like even a temple 
school, <laughs> you know? So it's, I mean, it's, it's an awesome blend of what I'm hearing from you. So I appreciate it. I appreciate you taking this job. Well, thank you. Yeah. I know. I've... It was just a weird rant. I don't know why. I, I don't know. I just, I <laughs> no, like. I... No, I, I, um, I similarly, uh, so I completely understand, um, what, what you're saying. You know, we, we, uh, I feel like, um, when it comes to, um, whether it be an elected official or, um, or, or anyone sort of across the board, you want to know that you're getting the bang for the buck, right? Like, yeah. So, so I think that's, it's, it's an important point. And, um, you know, um, I think I also appreciate, you know, just, just sort of the the perspective. I, I try to talk to people. I was actually talking to a friend just yesterday about this, that, um, that we don't always experience life outside of our profession, right? Like, I think that sometimes we, we get a, a very narrow vision of what the world is like. 100%. Yeah. And, um, and so I think it's, it's a real gift to have the curiosity to want to experience something and, and be open to, um, you know, just to hearing from other people and, and that sort of thing. And it's one of the things that I try to do is sort of invite people to educate me a bit on what the world is really like in, you know, from their perspective, because, um, you know, if I think we can all have a narrow focus, you know, so, so yeah. Yeah. Life, life goes quick and you just, you, you find your group and you kind of roll with it you know, but it seems like you just have this life blend of experience. They're so, it just seems you're extremely eclectic and <laughs> that might be the word of the day, but like, it just, I'm, I'm just super, I couldn't spell it, to, <laughs> but like, I guess, like I said, it, it just, I'm, I'm shocked. Um, aside from the sports stuff that you were sharing earlier, um, just like then I had no idea about the medical background and then I was like, yeah. And then I went kind of got into finance a little bit. Um, and then I just love, why do I love the blend of Republican father, but like Democrat choice. And it just seems like it leads to open-mindedness. It's like a blend of, I think what most people want, like the 80% of people just want what's best. They, they don't want to, they don't want you to just go party line. They just want to be like solution based. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Let me ask, can I ask you for two more things? How are you doing on time? I know. It's past my bedtime, so okay. it's okay. Um, so <laughs> there's, I wanted to talk a little bit about all the boards you were on because that was something too where I don't know if that's normal or if you're just that ambitious and you're going to be like president one day being, because if people Google you, you're on 12, at least I think 12 different boards. Um, one I want to talk about because this gets brought up, especially down here is like the, um, Agriculture Land Preservation Board. Mm -hmm. And I just, can you talk a little bit about what's your purpose on that? What's your focus on that? Um, I guess from the context of everybody hates farms being sold. And again, this is the capitalist in me where I'm like, isn't it their right to sell it? Shouldn't they be Mm -hmm. able to maximize their money? And that's their retirement, right? So why am I hating on them? Because I got to wait in traffic now. That's not the farmer's fault. The farmer made the smart investment. They bought right then. But at the same time, I'm mad at them. So I don't know how to balance this, you know? Yeah. 
So, um, so I, so I will say that a lot, a lot of the decisions that are most crucial to our lives, our day-to-day lives are, are made at the really, really, really local level. So right. when people get upset about schools and different, you know, functions in schools or, or, you know, decisions that were made during the pandemic, as an example, um, those are done by the, the school board or the district, you know, um, county and, council. Yeah. And the county council is, um, is where a lot of decisions are made when it comes to development and the requirements to do that development and the requirements to ensure that runoff and road, you know, water infrastructure and, uh, and just land design in general is done properly. Um, that's done at the town level for some towns. Um, and it's done at the county level as well. There's not a whole lot, you know, if you were to go from certain towns to the county, there's a lot of restriction in some towns on how development is done versus the county. Um, there's a lot more leeway. I'll just say, because your question was really around Agricultural Land Preservation Board. Um, currently, we have a little over 50% of all agricultural land in Delaware is in the preservation so that means that about a little over half, like I said, of all farmland is preserved for the next 100 years. No way. 100 years. 99 years. Gotcha. Yeah. Dude, that's amazing. I had no idea. What a fun fact for my next cocktail party. Yes. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm really glad that you're asking about this in particular because um, last year, the board had $10 million to give away. And every single farm that applied for funding received it. Uh, in fact, we were sort of doing outreach and trying to uh, ensure that farmers, especially young farmers, were aware of the program. Uh, the challenge is that, and that, that money at $10 million was um, a high mark so, for example, we never had ten million dollars before. That was that was a monumental um, set aside. This year, we have twenty million, Whoa. so it's been doubled. And is that the gov like a governor's choice? Is that legislators budgeting from that big pie that you've built, Delaware? Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's a combination of the two. Uh, we kind of we go to the governor and we do the door opener request. Right. We say, look. You set aside 10 million last year. Our projections are showing that we're going to have X amount. Could we double down on that investment in our in our agricultural uh, preservation? And um, and the governor said, Yeah, I'm I'm in agreement. Um, and then the legislature has to approve or the budget or itself, decide. right? Now I should have asked this. So what does that mean if a farmer goes to you? and locks their land in for a hundred dollars. They're basically like getting a check for like a hundred or 10 grand a year for the next hundred years. Do they get like one lump sum? Is it the lotto system kind of a thing you choose between a lump sum or aggregated payments? Yeah, so you, you can do it either way. Um, as you said, you know, typically what is happening is you've got, let's say a farmer who is maybe 70 
and they're still working their land. They might have family or they might have hired, um, you know, uh, farmhands that are helping to, to do the work. And, um, and, you know, those, um, sorry, the, sorry. you, you might have, um, <laughs> family that is, uh, that's not really interested in taking over the family business of farming. And as you approach, you know, those, those later years, you're kind of seeing an end in sight for your ability to, uh, produce crops and, um, and produce an income. And oftentimes farmers are saying, look, I, I know I've got to sustain myself in some way over the next, who knows, could be 20 years, um, or more. This allows them to set aside their their land in preservation um, and receive money that typically is going toward their retirement years. Um, oftentimes, they are then secondarily renting out their their land to someone who wants to work the the land and produce a crop on it. Oh, wow. Okay. So there's not a restriction that it limits them to be the sole farmers. I guess the restriction would just be that it continues to be farm land, cannot be developed. Exactly. Exactly. Is there like a formula, like a market value, or is there a ton of negotiation that goes along with this? Yeah. So, um, so we have, um, we have an attorney that kind of works with our farmers um, and they can, they can also get uh, another attorney if they want to and essentially come up with a value for the land. Uh, Then they'll offer that to the farmer and the farmer can say, look, I don't think that that's a fair price. Um, I'm going to ask someone else to value the land, you know, someone of my choosing to, to value the land. And typically if you've got a wide difference, which doesn't happen most of the time, um, but if you did, we would sort of negotiate somewhere in between or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, the majority of that is done, you know, through the attorneys and, and they, they kind of get to a place where it's kind of like a realtor kind of navigates some of that for you and you get to a good place. But, um, but we also have, something that's called the Young Farmers Program. Okay. This is where you can be anywhere from 18 to 40. Um, so at 40, you're still considered young. So woohoo! Um, for you, maybe, not for me, damn it. <laughs> um, it's official now. Now I officially feel old. <laughs> you cannot participate in the Young Farmers Program. I'm so sorry. Um but, uh, but, the, but the cool thing about that is it, it helps our young farmers to purchase their first farm. And you have oh. to demonstrate that you have three years of experience. So that's typically done through, um, you know, family farming or working as a farmhand or sometimes uh, through 4-H or um, Future Farmers of America or something like that. No. So like if you were, if you have three years of experience in high school with 4-H that would qualify mm-hmm. you. Yeah, and often um, wow. you're able to kind of point to, so as an example, you might say, um, I wanna purchase this farm and on this farm, I'm gonna have some livestock and here's E-I-E-I-O. my experience. Sorry, yeah, I was just like, no, on no. this farm, I'll have some livestock, E-I-E-I-O. Exactly, so stupid. exactly. <laughs> um, but if you've ever been to the state fair, 
we have kids who are competing at the age of six. They're raising livestock on their own and, um, and they compete. And, and so you can have substantial history in, um, and experience in farming by the time you're 18 for a lot of kids. And, uh, and I think it's a, it's a, a big opportunity that a lot of farmers I wish knew more about and um, took advantage of because what ends up happening is most of the time at 18, you don't have a substantial cache of, of money set aside to help you buy that first uh, property. And this is where the agricultural land preservation um, fund comes in. We, we help you to make that first purchase and, uh, and ensure that, that you are, you know, financially sound as you kind of go through um, the, the process of, raising crops and, you know, potentially livestock and, and things like that. So it's a great program. So is it almost like a VA loan where you just get to be, have like a no money down hundred percent financing option. And then you also get like a, like a life coach or a financial coach to help you with, Hey, it doesn't make sense to go whatever soy. And I know nothing about farming soybeans for the fifth time might want to shake it up a little bit and go with winter wheat or something like that. Yeah, there's, there's a, there's a little bit of that. Like, so for example, if, uh, you know, um, if, if you were interested in, uh, let's say you, you already have a farm or you've got, let's say you have a grandparent who has given you a portion of farmland and said, you know, you know, third generation, this is for you. This is your allotment. Uh, if you can demonstrate that you are, have a plan to produce, whatever you're you're planning to produce and you've gotten a certain amount of you have to have um an expected um like uh, yield yeah like production yeah yield of um of about ten thousand dollars a year and so if you can demonstrate that you expect to um produce enough to kind of hit that mark um then you you can participate in in the program and again a lot of times it helps that youngster, you know, pay for that, that first parcel of land. Dude, I am so upset. I had no idea. Was all this going on when I was 18? Was yeah. this stuff happening like 22 years ago that I just didn't make a phone call? We just didn't have as much money to give away. Right. Um, and I, and I think that um, it's tough. It's a balance that, so for example, as a, as a, someone who's inheriting land, you're, you may say, look, I'm not interested in farming. And so I just want the land and I'm going to turn it over to, you know, a big builder who's going to put 300 houses on it instead, you know? Yeah. All right. So then why, if we have so much money, why should, how come I don't just pay less taxes? Is that a terrible question? Again, not trying to gotcha at all, but I guess trying to understand my balance as a, I feel like I'm yeah. fiscally conservative, but I like the fact that we have all this stuff, that we offer all these options. I think it's really, really cool that there are so many opportunities out there for people. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when it comes to um, agriculture, it's a big part of our economy in Delaware in particular. Um, so... The two largest uh, exports that we have in Delaware are from Sussex County, uh, we're the the largest uh, chicken production county nationwide. We produce the most chicken 
of any county in the United States. Second fun fact of the night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the other product that is actually number one on exports for Delaware are chemicals. And a lot of those chemicals that are produced go into fertilizer and, um, and, and other uh, uh, agricultural um, products. So agriculture is a big part of our economy, but um, we also need to eat and feed people. And, um, and so it's kind of, it's more vital than just a part of our economy, you know? Um, so if it was, you know, if we were Maine and we were LL Bean, you know, it, it would be a little different than to say, like everybody needs food. Um, so, so why do we invest in food? That's kind of the biggest reason. And, um, the one thing that I will say is why don't you pay less taxes? Um, everyone, uh, every adult resident of Delaware received a $300 tax rebate check this year for that exact reason, because we had such a surplus um, we found ways to invest in our communities um, and invest in people. And then, you know, the excess, we said, well, let's send it back to taxpayers. Let's send it back to people who, you know, maybe didn't pay income tax, but paid, you know, their, their gas tax, they paid, you know, tolls, they paid, you know, things like that. Um, and so that was a way that we were not only trying to sort of help people in the midst of a pretty substantial inflationary period that um, everyone has been trying to navigate, but also um, but also to say, we've got enough. Let's give this back. Does, so then would the argument be if you give us back $300, that's hurt, that just makes inflation go up? Is that a silly argument because the money was already accounted for? So it doesn't make inflation go up or am I oversimplifying that? No, you are touching on a very important uh, point in that. Cause when that, that's have... what everybody, I'm sorry, but like that was the big thing. Like, oh, you just, now inflation's gonna be even worse. And I'm like, yeah, but if they already collected the money and they're just giving it back to you, it's not like they're making up this money, which I thought is, inf they're not like incurring debt to give us money. They're not creating money. They're just giving it, back to you. So it would help inflation because now you have more spending power. So inflation is like, is directly correlative to demand. So what happens, especially because we're Americans and we're sort of very big consumers, <laughs> um, is that whenever we have money, we tend to buy things with that money. And we don't tend to necessarily pay off debt, although people did do that in large amounts, you know, people really looked to reduce their debt. Um, but, but you're absolutely right. The more money that's in circulation, the higher the demand is for very limited resources. And some of that goes back to supply chain issues that we continue to see and uh, continue to face. And as an example, if, um, if I'm someone who needs a new roof on my house, um, or maybe doesn't need a new, maybe, maybe I just want to upgrade my bathroom, let's say, or, or whatever. Maybe I need a new car. I could make do with my old car, but I really want that new one. That's where the demand, and we saw these, you know, really um, astronomical numbers as far as uh, what people were paying for, not only used cars, but new cars. That all is related to 
the high demand and, and low um, production that was occurring. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right that we kind of make that inflation worse by sending more money out into the circulation. Um, yeah, so you're right. Okay. See, I didn't, but so no, I was actually wrong. Cause I was saying, I didn't think it hurt inflation at all, but the way you explained it definitely shows you understand money more than me. Um, no, I, th I think you, you make a very good point. I think that, um, the, the thing is, is that as consumers, we have to choose, right? Like we, we receive that money and it could compound inflation. We could say, well, it was really expensive for me to fill my car and now that I have this money, I'm going to take a few extra trips um, rather than I'm going to hunker down and really think about whether or not I need to go, you know, a few states over to whatever. Right. Like, gotcha. yeah, That's, I mean, you, you've got it. No, yeah, kind of. I still it's amazing how I'm this old and have a, a decent salary and all these options to me. And I'm still trying to understand just how money works. Um. <laughs> It's a weird, I don't know. It's a weird quirk of mine. Can I, this will be the last board question I ask you. Cause this mm -hmm. is something um, I've been into, I guess, cause of the Netflix documentary, The Staircase. Did you happen to see that at all with Michael no. Peterson? No, but I'm writing it down. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's because, I don't know. I watch way too much Netflix, which is why I don't understand inflation. You understand inflation cause you don't watch much Netflix. It's a causal, is, what's that? A causal correlation? There you go. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, look, you're describing um, some great uh, reading. Uh, and I would, if you do want to hear more about like, kind of the history of bonds and municipal market, there's a really good one called The Bond King that really talks about um, the history of Bill Gross, who is the Bond King. He kind of, um, he uh, developed the concept of trading bonds. And it's, um, it's something we take for granted for, like we take for granted today. I, I certainly do. The, the, the municipal market is really um, wild. So in any case, your question is about boards. Sorry. Yeah, well, no. So Michael Peterson, um, his staircase, he basically was wrongfully convicted of murdering his wife. She fell downstairs. He was an author or um, there's a, whatever, a theory out now, maybe an owl attacked her. But anyway, the dude was falsely imprisoned because of a blood splattering expert, um, Dwayne Peterson. And he falsified, it was found out he falsified evidence in 34 different trials. Like it was amazing. And then I'm listening to another podcast about the Innocence Project. And there just seemed to be all a, a, too many people locked up who shouldn't be locked up. And I noticed you were on the board of pardons. And I don't know if that in any way is connected or if there's another definition for the word pardons, but I'm curious about like your role in, if people are appealing, do you see pardons? Like, would you in any way, if someone felt they were unjustly incarcerated, like you're one of the people to contact or can you just talk to me a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So, um, so the board of pardons, uh, sees, uh, we review cases of you know, folks that are well past their um, sentencing, you know, sort of serving their time or um, their fines or, or what have you, um, all the way up to folks who are still incarcerated and are looking for a commutation. Um, so so every, everyone on the spectrum. 
Um, I'll give you an example. We once uh, saw a gentleman who came before the board who uh, started a backyard fire in the, in the summer months, which is a um, which is not allowed. You're not not Burn supposed down. to start a fire. Exactly. Um, and he just didn't know, and he wanted it off of his record. Most of the time, we don't see cases like that, like where someone is explaining why they're there for something that small. It's usually a letter, and we kind of just review the case or the history and um, review the file and, and you know, usually recommend that they receive a pardon. Um, but then there are a lot of folks who have a really long history and... Um, the biggest things that we're looking for when we speak with um, uh, individuals is essentially a track record for having changed your life. You know, that, that whatever the behavior was that kind of got you to the point where you were engaged in illegal activity that, um, that was consistent and um, pretty, you know, sometimes very egregious. Um, that you've sort of reformed your life in some way. And, you know, the whole purpose of the Board of Pardons is it's it's really and truly um, asking for forgiveness and demonstrating that you're prepared to receive it. Um, and so, you know, there, there are times that we see folks who've been in jail for a long time and uh, sentencing is very different today than it was, you know, when you and I were finishing high school. Um, so, um, so yeah, so the, the, so essentially what happens is again, we, we meet once a month when I first took office, we had a huge backlog. We have months and months and months where people had been waiting and waiting for their case to be reviewed. I will say that, um, Bethany Hall Long, our Lieutenant governor really, uh, ensured that we got through that backlog and we're now up to date. And, um, and so, we were at one point seeing like 60, 70 cases in a day, which is a long day. Oh my God. Yeah. And the one thing that I will say is that, for example, I, uh, I treated a lot of patients uh, in, in neurosurgery and um, I've had to recuse myself from some of those cases because I had patients who, you know, didn't survive um, or, you know, things like that. And I've had to just sort of say, I was involved in this crime way back in the day. And so um, in order for this person to receive a real uh, unbiased, you know, um, uh, opinion or, you know, that kind of thing, I, I'm usually uh, recusing myself in those circumstances. So of medical situations. Yeah. So uh, I'll give you an example. I, I treated patients that were, you know, victim of gun violence or um, like a bar fight where someone just got way out of hand instead of it being a fist fight, all of a sudden there's a crowbar involved and, you know, things like that, where it just very, very violent crimes that, um, you know, I was treating the victim. Uh, and, and so oftentimes if there's a situation like that, I, I'm just sort of, making sure that, uh, that, that I'm not, you know, um, so it's not, it's not like the medical situation itself. It's like you literally were helping the person who got their head cracked open. Right. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Good call. Can I go back to 60, 70 cases a day? How do you like, 
I'm, I'm trying to do the math in my head of like a case per minute average on a whatever 10 hour day, eight hour day. And I'm like, how do you understand enough to make a judgment with, but yeah. while getting through everyone who wants to be heard, because it has to be a terrible balance to strike terribly hard. Yeah. So, um, so what we do is we receive all the case files ahead of time. Um, so between, you know, as I said, we're, we're meeting once a month. So we typically have 30 days between, uh, you know, dates and we're reviewing those files. Um, as a, as a general, we go through and say, you know, case one, two, three, you know, case and, and kind of call out the numbers and say, look, I'm okay with granting, uh, a, um, an opportunity for pardon for these 20 cases, because on paper, this was a backyard fire. Yes, it was a mistake. They've had 20 years of never making this kind of mistake again. Let's, you know, this is on paper, easy to sort of go, we're in good shape. Um, so that's kind of how we would get through that many cases. Um, and then again, you're preparing for those 30 days to see those other individuals as they come before you. You kind of are reviewing out-of-state records, for example. Um, we have had people come before the board who have had 10 years of not having any issues in Delaware, but they have a warrant out for their arrest in Pennsylvania. You know, stuff like that, where it's like, look, you got to clean this up and then come back to us and make sure that whatever the situation is in Pennsylvania that they want you for, you got to go before them, fix that whole thing, clear it up, and then come back and see us. Those kinds of things we're able to deal with without having to require that the person come in, for example. So it's administrative is what we sort gotcha. of deem that. And do like do people actually go there and plead their case before you? Like they would schedule that? Yes. Yep. So there's a there's a you know big chunk of folks that will be required to come and in, in, in person sort of say here's what was going on in my life. This is what happened. This is how I've changed my life. And this is why I really need this pardon. So for example, we get a lot of people who say, um, I have very limited employment opportunities, or they'll say I was passed over for um, a higher position at my current job because of my record, or sometimes it's housing. Um, mm -hmm. People can have uh, difficulty with getting, um, especially rental housing um, because uh, because they're they're not given the opportunity due Back, to their record background check stuff mm -hmm. do you feel yourself on any sort of spectrum where you're like kind of hard or maybe you feel like you're too understanding too empathetic or you feel like you're pretty 50 50 where you're a good judge of character i i think that anyone who thinks that they're a good judge of character is being um, I don't know, thinking too much of themselves, <laughs> um, you know, I was going to say, I, gonna, being a poor judge of their own character. <laughs> yeah, I, seriously. I mean, I, I just don't think that, um, I don't, I, I think that you have to remain open. You have to be prepared to not only read the file, but also hear the person before you and, uh, and, you know, try to gain as much understanding as you possibly can. I am not perfect. And I think that's why there's a board, which is comprised of five of us. And as a collective, you know, um, you, 
you, you do the best you can. And, uh, and, and I would never, I would never say that I'm perfect. I would never say that uh, I'm the best judge of character. I just think that like, you have to, you have to do the best you can. You have to come in with an open mind and you try to remain that way. It's a weird philosophical point for me because I'm like, I want to err on the side of belief in human. I want to, I want to believe you. I want to give you a second chance. And then in my head, I'm like, does somebody die because I cast a vote that gave someone a, a second chance and now there's a whatever DUI or some sort of aggravated assault where this I, I've somehow had a hand in, I believed in someone and then it led to a terrible outcome. But I'm like, I, I so I don't know how I would vote. I don't know how I would deal in that situation because it's so easy for me to see both sides. That's why I was curious. Yeah. I mean, one thing that, um, that is good is that, uh, we have several individuals who've been on the board for quite some time. And so that having that, um, I guess, knowledge or historical knowledge, um, is helpful. And one of the things that, you know, is pretty standard is just to say, look, you get a shot at a pardon once. Mm -hmm. So if you're pardoned, and you know you you mess up again don't expect to come before the board of pardons and receive another one makes sense how did you get on it is it typical for state treasurer to be is that like just seat given to whoever's in that position yes so uh the the board is comprised of the uh secondary i'm sorry the secretary of state the um chancellor the lieutenant governor the you know myself the treasurer and the auditor so the five of us are on that board gotcha um colleen i i know it's been long for anybody listening it's 10 34 at night and you have rapid fired answered all of my sporadic questions by the way i sent none of them to you that nothing was yeah. pre-planned this was completely you just speaking to me like an absolute boss for an hour and 50 minutes. Um, <laughs> is there anything we didn't get into? Do you wanna say anything else in closing? Yeah, I, I, I will say this, um, Sean. I, uh, I'm grateful to have grown up in Sussex County. I'm grateful to have had a number of teachers who really and truly impacted my life at a very critical time um, and uh, you know, my, my father, when I was a senior in high school, was at Hopkins. He was uh, in the hospital. We, we thought he was dying. And, um, and I was preparing for college. I was putting in my college applications all by myself and um, also caring for my uh, five younger siblings, trying to help get them to school on time. I remember being sat down in the office um, and, uh, you know, fist slammed on the table, being told, why have you been late for 30 days straight? Um, and it was, I explained, my, uh, my father's in the hospital. I'm caring for my younger siblings. And school starts later in the elementary uh, school than it does in high school. And I have to make sure my youngest brother gets on the bus. Um, and, uh, and then I drive as quickly as I can to school. I had 
amazing teachers that uh, not only helped me navigate the process of applying for college, but who really and truly cared about me and, um, and, and saw something in me. They educated me, but they also believed in me. And so I'm just grateful to have had the um, experience. And, uh, and, I, and I'm also grateful for um, my husband and my three kids who are really amazing human beings. And, uh, and so, Sean, I just want to say thank you for the work that you do. It's, um, you may never know the impact that you have on people's lives, but it's, um, it's palpable and it's real. And, um, and uh, yeah, uh, so thank you. Oh, a little shout out to teachers. I love it. Hug the heartstrings. Dude, it's, I don't know, man. I, I, I don't know who, I have not spoken to the person that's running against you. I can't imagine they're going to get my vote over you. Like I, <laughs> I'm, I'm like beyond impressed with just your ability to freestyle and have so much knowledge. It is, to me, it is uncommon to do this at the complete end of a day. And um, I'm in awe. I'm in awe of your intelligence. Thank you for your service and thank you for taking the job. And thank you for like just trying to think of people instead of macro. It seems like you also get very micro and think about a lot of individuals. And um, I hope things go really well for you. Um, when's the election? November 8th, November 6th? I think it's November yes, 8th. November 8th. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I, I do not have a primary thing. Yeah. Right. No primary. So looking on November 8th, how will you spend that night? Is it a big deal for you? Will you go to bed at like six and you're like, oh, I'll just find out tomorrow. Well, I, I, we haven't mapped it out completely. The, the first, um, the first election we were, we were all together and, uh, um, I don't, I'm not sure we haven't mapped it out yet, but I probably I'll wait for all the votes to come in. I, I don't think I'll go to bed. <laughs> yeah, it dude, it was historically close. That office like has historically been a five, 6% vote like within man. It's, um, God, it would tear me up. I wouldn't be able to sleep. You know, <laughs> I hope, I hope you enjoy the stress. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, no, right. it was, uh, it was it was a win that was um, hard fought, that's for sure. But uh, but um, yeah, awesome. I'll let you know. I'll let you know how we planned this one. Appreciate. It. <laughs> Thank you, Colleen Davis. Thank you so much for your time. Take care. Bye. Thanks to Andre Psyche for supporting the Getting to Know You Pod. Search up Andre Psyche on social media. Give him a follow just for the fuck of it, dear listeners. If you've enjoyed getting to know today's guest or just want to support this upstart podcast, go to our Patreon. For as little as $2 a month, your donation will help with all the costs associated with producing the Getting to Know You pod. Don't forget the three free ways to support the pod. One, subscribe to the Getting to Know You pod. Two, friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Three, go to Apple, write a review. And finally, if you or someone you know would like to become a sponsor of or advertise on the Getting to Know You pod, we would love to partner with you. We have a wide-ranging global audience that would like to get to know more about your brand or business. If you're interested, just message us. See you.